So, hey everyone, welcome to uh, Divergent Opinions episode something. Uh, we're we're on six now. Uh, that sounds right. I could check, but I don't want to. How your week been, Mike? Good. Not what too bad. What you been up Did to? Did you notice? So we do this in Skype. Did you notice that the, there's like a a glow around the little generic icon that yeah. seems to be triggered off the VU meter of your mic? Whoa, it is. Yeah. Know. See that? That's pretty exciting. Glow. I bet there's a way I can make that a picture of you. I think I have to make that a picture of me. Oh, how do I make a picture of me, me? Wait, there, I can, maybe I can drag to that. How oh, do I this is going to be a while, isn't it? Oh, God. I'm, we're going to make, is this going to be the podcast where people listen to us install Lion? There. Can you see me now? I can. Hi. Do you uh, like it when I pulse? Not so much now. Not when you put it that way. Uh-huh. Okay, well. So how's your week? It was, it was good. Um... I've been in uh, Linux land the last day or so, which is actually uh, kind of fun. I'd hate to admit it, but uh, it's kind of fun. Yeah, you seem to you seem to be enjoying it. It's a nice break to like get back to my roots. We're uh, we're moving a server from uh, dedicated uh, dedicated machine to a virtual host, um, just to get with the times, or a, a virtual machine, I should say. Uh, hosted by Linode, um, and it's a machine that dates back to the mid-90s, uh, at least sort of in name and users, if not physical hardware. Um, and unfortunately, uh, some of the like config files and things date back that far as well. Uh, and so, oh, really? So you've just been copying stuff over? From yeah, I mean, I think it, I was trying to remember. I think there have been a few reboots where... Um, but you know, maybe we maybe we've never started totally clean. There was one time when uh, someone hacked it and rm-r slash starred the machine, but we were able to undelete a lot of stuff. And then um, there were a couple other times, like you know, this was the machine I learned Linux on in the mid '90s, and so there were a couple times when I did stupid things, like uh, accidentally made the entire system world writable or you know, things like that. Um, but I don't think we've ever actually lost every single file. And so, yeah, I'm, I, I think there are probably like some of these Apache configs and bind configs that, that date back, um, essentially to the mid nineties running, you know, very early Slackware. And, uh, so we're starting fresh, uh, doing everything, uh, in the modern way with modern layouts and things. It's been kind of, uh, kind of entertaining, you know? So do we want to, do we want to talk about this a little? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it bores uh, the hell out of me, but you seem interested. Well, I'm interested just because, uh, you know, Linux can be fun. Uh, we're moving to Ubuntu. We've been on CentOS for a while. I think uh, prior to Cent, this machine was Gentoo for a while, and prior to that, it, it was Slackware for years and years and years. Um, and Ubuntu's, you know, so far proven to be pretty delightful to work with. I, this is my first real exposure to it because all the other uh, Linux servers I run are either CentOS or Red Hat Enterprise. So how do they compare? I'm just out of curiosity because our our the Divergent Media server is was bought at about the same time. It's it's the same config as the old machine. I mean, obviously we started from scratch with that one, but that was I think know, they were both hosted machines through Rackspace. Yeah, we, your your you machine's know, actually a, a newer vintage, but uh, <laughs> a slightly newer version of Scent, right? But as far as, I mean, one of the big things we've had problems with with CentOS is that they backport all of their patches instead of increasing the version numbers of things. Yeah, I mean, Sense got a couple issues. So the idea with CentOS is that, um, you know, so to, to go way back, you know, Red Hat was one of the early Linux distros, um, not the very first wave, but one of the early waves. And they were one of these companies that during the first bubble actually like spun up into a real company um, out of North Carolina. They went public and really pushed Linux into the enterprise and have been really successful. And their model nowadays is you buy Red Hat Enterprise, you get support, you get long-term maintenance, which means that if you run Red Hat 5, for example, they're going to keep doing security fixes and, and things like that for some ungodly amount of time at least ungodly in the open source world, not in the like big iron world. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, there's upgrade paths and other things. And then um, they used to do an open source dump of that called Fedora. Fedora may still be around, but I want to say that it's not, at least not in the same way it used to be. Um, but because it's all open source, they have to release the, the source to Red Hat Enterprise. And so there's a group called CentOS. There's a few groups that do it, but since the big one, who take all the source from Red Hat, compile it into basically the same packages you would get from Red Hat, and then ship it as a, a free distro um, where you don't get the support and you don't get some of the ongoing um, automatic maintenance, but you get the same packages and they're binary compatible. Um, and the issue then is CentOS is tied to Red Hat's schedule, which is very conservative. Um, and so you sort of get CentOS 5, which is equivalent to Red Hat 5, and it gets very minor security fixes, but, you know, it'll stay sort of fixed in time as far as the major versions. You know, PHP will be stuck at 5.1, you know, five years after 5.2 is out because they don't do feature upgrades. They just do security, <laughs> so the back backport security fixes. Um, right, and where that's been a problem for us is because we run our own credit card processing. We actually, in order to maintain security on the box and you know be compliant with what Visa and the card vendors need. PCI we DSS. have right, we have a service that actually hits the box repeatedly and does things like, you know, tries to, you know, put malicious code into all of our forms and tries to, you know, basically you know, a couple times a month just tries to hack the box automatically. And then, you know, generates reports for us and, and what needs to change. And the way that that's set up is that, you know, it actually asks Apache, you know, what version are you? And it asks PHP, what version are you? And then it generates a list of all of the bugs that have been reported against those versions, all the security vulnerabilities. And so because CentOS never increments that revision number, we end up every time they do an automated check of the box, they reopen a swath of tickets about what security vulnerabilities they think we have, even though you know we have applied all the security patches. Right, and you know in the in the larger, so is Ubuntu like that or how? No, I mean you know? well, Ubuntu's got two things. So um, you know they release much more frequently. You know the other issue I didn't mention with CentOS is that they've had historically some internal political issues within the group um, some personality issues uh, and so even when red hats pushed fixes it's sometimes been they've been sometimes pretty slow to roll them out um, and to get updates out there um, but it's over beard yeah yeah exactly mm. um, yeah one guy uses emacs one guy uses vi and so uh, they threatened to shut the country down over it uh, or maybe i've mixed issues there um, so ubuntu is backed by a company by uh, whatever that dude is company's name is. I'm not going to look it up. Um, and it's it's a fork of Debian, or a, it's based off of Debian, um, which has been around for again one of the the original distros, and was sort of intended to be a more desktopy Linux. But because they've had a lot of um, momentum, it's gotten used in the uh, server environment as well. And so they do release much more frequently. Um, a few times a year, and then every fourth release, I think they call a long-term support release. So what we're running on this Linode box is actually one revision behind. It's Ubuntu 10.04 uh, with some funny alliterative name, um, and that's a long-term support release, which means that it'll continue to get security fixes um, for some fixed amount of time. And so, um, and they use a different update mechanism. The, the cool thing with Ubuntu is that one, it's if you choose to, it's much more easier and it's much more easy. It's much easier, much easier. to um, keep your server on the bleeding edge. If you want to upgrade from one major release to the next, that's all pretty easy and pretty reliable. Um, and if you're in an environment where you need to stay on a fixed release, um, you know, on a particular piece of hardware or something, those long-term support releases do get the updates. And it seems like um, the updates are a little bit more liberal than the, the Red Hat updates, at least from what I've seen in terms of, um, you know, within reason doing more featurey upgrades. Um, hmm. But the, the update mechanism in general just seems a lot easier. It's apt instead of uh, RPM or YUM. Um, and 
yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying this Linode box. Um, they've got a great interface for managing virtual machines. They've really built out a lot of infrastructure around them. It was super simple to get started. Um, they have some great recovery features. If you lock yourself out of the box, like you can't SSH into it, they give you uh, console access via like a, a fake serial terminal. Um, snapshot backups, right. you know, you can, and, and then of course, if you don't want Ubuntu, they've got probably a, a couple dozen different distributions you can choose. Um, and you can actually, what's, what's kind of neat is that when you buy a, a slice from them, from whatever, I forget what their, their term is it, um, you're buying, you're buying RAM and you're buying storage and sort of effectively buying some CPU and bandwidth. Um, but what you're not buying is a machine. And so you can actually take your 40 gigabytes and slice it up however you want and run multiple hosts out of that um, and adjust that on the fly. And, you know, maybe you want to try a couple OSs simultaneously. You can, like, spin up four 10 gigs out of your 10 oh, gig machine. So you can say, so that's not one VM. No. So we should explain this. So the the box that runs Divergent Media and all of our corporate stuff and the box that used to run this server were both through a company called Rackspace uh, no. and you uh, well now they're called Plan. now they're software they were the planet and before that they were Rack Shack okay and so and what wait they, they were EV1 as well in there god right. and so what, what we pay for is every month we're leasing a physical computer in a rack and we have complete they you know when you start your contract they take a server turn on the power to it tell you the ip address and basically leave you be right and And it's your machine as long as you continue to pay the bills and you get the the data plan for it and the power and you know a little bit of on-site tech support but not much right which basically is that they'll reboot it if it physically dies and if there's a physical hardware problem they'll swap the hardware but if you screw it up you know you're going to pay them to wipe it and start over there's no sort of troubleshooting and so this new thing linode you're you're not you didn't buy a physical machine you're buying time on a machine it's it's like the old timeshare days and ironically enough, they didn't buy physical machines either. They're buying dedicated machines from other people. They don't run data centers. So, you, so you're basically running a virtual machine, almost like VMware or Parallels or something. Exactly. It's in this case, I think it's Citrix Zen. Um, but you right. know, there's, there's, yeah, all of those manufacturers plus a few others have enterprise solutions for doing this. And so it's you and a bunch of other people on one physical box right but even that's abstracted away from you it's you on some portion of some box right and i you know my server exists essentially as a disk image um, or multiple disk images um, that can be moved to different data centers um, that can be you know if i want another 10 gigs of RAM, that's one click in the interface, and the machine reboots with instantly with 10 more gigs of RAM. Um, hmm. Interesting. So it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's sort of, you know, obviously the business model very much like, um, well, so when RackShack first got started, they were using, I think they were called Cobalt Racks, which were these interesting sort of 1U machines that ran, I think, on ARM processors and had like a crazy web UI, very early sort of virtual min thing um, in the 90s for doing administration. But they pretty quickly, when they became EV1, got into this model where they bought really cheap machines. So like our, you know, our machines are not blades. They're not fancy, dedicated server hardware. They're like the cheapest machine you can build or buy. Um, and they sit on like wire racks or at least, you know, this was their, their old model. And then you basically oversell your bandwidth. Um, but you, you know, essentially are dedicating hardware. And so now what you do is instead you get a beefier sort of enterprisey server, you oversell your bandwidth and you oversell your CPU and your RAM. Um, and so you can right on the on the model that no one ever maxes out their machine right. 24 hours a day. What's cool with a VM though is that you know they don't have to be sort of super hardcore about it. So if someone is going to max that out, they can s- almost seamlessly move 
other VMs off of that machine to free up resources um, or, you know, enforce limits so that they can keep one VM from keeping, you know, from, you know, edging out all the other VMs. Um, actually, with some of the the really hardcore stuff, um, like the um, VMware Enterprise product, I know um, you can actually move a VM from one physical machine to another while it's booted and not even drop TCP connections. Wow. Yeah. I mean... Still That's pretty impressive. Don't really understand how that works, but yeah, it can literally like a machine can be hosted out of you know New York, multiple and machines. Then instantly it's hosted out of Los Angeles, and your user who's downloading a file never knows. Wow. So in any case, I mean, you know, we went with Linode just based on some Twitter recommendations. There's a lot of people in this space now. Um, it's sort of a nice, I think, for us. Um, you know, there's a group of us who still feel like it's useful to have a machine that we control and that we can, you know, spin up other domains on and things like that. So it's a little bit more than what you'd get from a shared hosting account like DreamHost might provide you, which is a very inexpensive way to, you know, host a website. Um, But there just isn't a need for us to have a dedicated machine anymore. We're not doing high CPU stuff. Um, You still get a ton of bandwidth, 400 gigs of transfer a month, which is more than enough. and, you know, the really nice thing is that it means that you're no longer worried about a hard drive dying or a power supply dying. I mean, in, in the in the 15 years we've run this machine, you know, we've had everything from hard drive, lots of hard drive failures, lots of power supply failures, motherboard failures. We've had holes blown in our data centers. We've had fires. We've had, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, you know, mom blowing the circuit breaker with her vacuum cleaner you know the server's gone down for every reason you can imagine and so thinking that that's no longer an issue that we as administrators have to worry about is fairly attractive yeah no it'll be interesting so so yeah when i mean we should clarify that when you say us you mean i mean it's we're both on that server and a, and a number right. of other friends it's, are doing it but it's more of a it's not us that co op, right? Right. It's just a bunch of us who said, you know, individually, none of us can justify the fifty or hundred bucks a month for a server. Um, but you get a few people to, you know, just get together, um, and it becomes pretty a pretty reasonable alternative to a uh, shared hosting account, and you get the added flexibility. Um, but it's definitely a, a trust based system. You know, we um, everyone who has access has root, and uh, you know, yeah, right. Well, yeah. So for the, I mean, it would be nice. I, you know, I've been looking into this to see what we can switch on the company side, just because it seems like such a better solution. Um, and you know, if we weren't beholden to you know the contractual obligations of the credit card processors, you know, which basically say you have to have your own box so that you can physically control it, um, it, you know, I'm sure we would switch over on the, the website as well. Well, and I think that it's only a matter of time before PCI gets liberalized enough to support VMs. I mean, they've gone a little bit that direction already with a recent revision that, you know, you have to basically have a dedicated virtualization cluster for your PCI activities, but um, that's that's a step in the right direction. You know, their, their real issue um, is that they're worried. So the way these technologies run is something called a hypervisor, which is what allows these sort of independent... Um, computers to run, these independent virtual machines to run on a single piece of hardware. Um, And unlike if you think way, way back to something like virtual PC, um, where one, it was emulating everything, but it was was literally like the software was making a new processor on top of your existing processor and then booting an OS on top of that. With hypervisor virtualization, you know, my virtual machine is working directly with the hardware and your virtual machine is working directly with the hardware and there's features built into the CPU and into the, the memory controller and things like that that allow these different machines to context switch um, and not know about each other and actually have sort of first order priority access. And what PCI is worried about is that if someone figured out a way to exploit hypervisor and to sort of break out of that shell and write some sort of exploit that then let them, you know, break into another virtual machine from there. Um, you know, you could you could do all kinds of nasty things or sniff network traffic or, or do other things. Um, you know, I think it's only a matter of time before they revise their 
their worries because I'm just not convinced that it's a substantially more risky thing than someone exploiting a router or a switch in a data center and doing similar sorts of things. Well, I mean, none of it. I mean, it's not a rational set of requirements. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's not very video related. Let's, no. uh, so let's get into some video stuff. Move on. Today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this week, I thought we'd talk a little bit about um, interlacing. Okay. Because interlacing is something that, um, you know, it's it's with us every day. Um, I think people are often at least sort of passively aware that it's out there, if not, you know, noticing it directly. But uh, it's something that gets screwed up a whole lot, and it makes people's lives more difficult, and it results in bad-looking video. Um, and so I thought it'd be an interesting thing for us to talk about. Okay. So, inter- so interlacing, do you want to give a really brief history or anything like that? Sure. So um, NTSC video, the old standard over-the-air TV signal we've had for all these years, um, is 30 frames a second interlaced, which means in reality it is 60 frames are recorded and displayed a second but because the physical CRTs in the old days the actual scan scanning electronic phosphorus tube you know TV the old style where you like literally had an electron gun hitting pieces of phosphor with electrons as it scanned across under magnetic control it just physically well, there were, there were two technical limitations. One was that they scanning the electron happened at a certain speed, which was matched to the, the sort of carrier frequency of the signal. Which is also the frequency of power. Right. 60 hertz. Which is, yeah, which has to be some factor, you know, for, for strobing issues, has to, you know, it helps that it's some factor of the the you know frequency of electrical power because that's the frequency that all incandescent lights vibrate at um and then the other issue is there's a certain lag in the phosphorus elements inside a crt so when you hit them with electrons they glow and then you know if you if you remember when you turned off a tv you know in the old days when tvs used to be heavy they would, uh, you know, the thing would sort of fall into a little dot in the middle and the dot would slowly fade away. And that's because the electrons all coalesced in the center. And then once you turn off that electron beam, it takes a while for the phosphors to actually stop glowing after they've been excited by the electron beam. And so what would happen is they wanted to do 60, 60 temporal frames a second, but one, the phosphors didn't dim quick enough to do that. So you would basically be writing a frame on top of another frame. And two, they didn't have enough bandwidth to physically do that. And so the solution was to do something called interlacing, which was basically we're going to we're going to update the screen 60 times a second, but we're not going to update the entire screen 60 times a second. We're going to do Every 30th of a second, we're going to draw the entire screen, but we're going to skip every other line. So, you know, in the first of 60 frames, we're going to do, you know, all of the even lines on the screen. And then we're going to go back up to the top and do all of the odd lines. And then we're going to go back and start frame three on all the even lines. And then we're going to do frame four on all the odd lines. And so what you had was you had two half-resolution frames being drawn offset by half of your frame rate in temporal space. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does it make sense to people who didn't know what I was talking about? Uh, They'll read Wikipedia. Let's hope so. And so this was around. This made a lot of sense in the analog days. And then... HD came along, and we were well. Even we came up with a great standard, which was uh, 720p, which was going to get rid of everything. We we're going to do progressive for everything, 
And then we added a bunch of other standards. Right. And so even before we went HD, I think it's worth noting um, all of the digital standard def formats were interlaced as well. So DV, for example, was 60i. Um, and right towards the end of their lives, um, you started to get progressive, quote-unquote progressive cameras um, to get that that more, well, we'll talk about look in a second, but to get a more film-style look. But um, they were all still doing basically hacks to put progressive data in an interlaced stream by, um, you know, using, you know, well, so there's there's two ways that you can, you can think about this. So the camera, when it's shooting, also acquires interlaced. Um, it read, you know, the CCD reads out all the even lines and then all the odd lines. Um, and right, so, back in the analog days, that's how it happened. Right, and so you're actually getting 60 fields of, of motion. Instead, what a progressive DV camera does is it reads out an entire frame at a time, so you're actually getting 30 images, and then you're breaking those images up into 60 fields, putting them on tape, um, and then hoping that later on you might you know, reconstruct 30 discrete frames instead of 60 fields or, or do some, some even more hackery to uh, make 24 frames fit in 60 fields. Um, but there is, I think, a difference that's worth noting in terms of the look here, uh, which, which may be self-evident if you think about what's going on. Um, with 60i, with interlaced, you are getting 60 different images every second, even though we always talk about TV being 30 frames a second and things like that. Um, you know, if the content was acquired interlaced, you are getting 60 different half-resolution frames every second. Um, and so if you just take those and um, extract a single frame out of that, um, there's n no way to take two sets of fields, combine them together, and have a perfectly pristine image, assuming that there was motion in the shot, for example. So um, if we think about a ball bouncing across the screen being shot interlaced, um, in every single field that's captured, the ball is going to be in a different place. It's not like field one and field two combined back together give you a snapshot of a moment in time. They're two discrete moments in time. Right, and so... Let's yeah. So th so what happened was, in the beginning, this was just a stream of, you know, analog video is essentially a stream of commands to the the electron gun in a CRT. It's saying you know it, there's a pulse that tells it when to to scan left and right, and when to move up and down, and the rest is intensity values for R, G, and B, or Y, y U, and v. v. Yes, right. And so, as it's scanning across, I mean, there's no there's no point in in the data ever where there's a frame. Um, if you start at a very very specific point and stop at a very specific point in that stream of voltages, you're able to reconstruct one field. And if you take two of those. Some people would say you can reconstruct a frame, which is, you know, the entire vertical resolution of that, you know, format across, a, you know, a 30th a second. However, it's never displayed that way on an analog TV. Right. You never see both of those at the same time. It's always one is fading out while the other one's getting drawn in. And what you would see, just to maybe connect this with what people might have seen on their computers, is what you would see is what's sometimes called a comb effect. Um, if you could actually see that, you would see these two discrete images interwoven with each other. Right, and so this didn't become an issue until we switched to digital. When we switched to digital, we have, you know, we can think of a digital video as a series of pictures, one after another. And so now the things have a discrete size and space and time. And when we did that, we decided that, you know, NTSC analog, analog video is going to come into the computer as 30 frames a second, and we're going to put both of those fields into one frame. So analog video has a vertical resolution of 486 lines and so we're going to create digital video files that have 486 vertical lines as well and that 
we're just going to take those two fields that happened at entirely different points in time and we're just going to stick them together, you know, interlaced, odd, and even, just like they get drawn on the screen, even though they never get drawn on screen at the same time and you never see them together. We're just going to put them together in a picture and compress it, and that's what, you know... That's DV. Or right. Whatever. And it's worth um, also pointing out that computer displays are always progressive. Um, whether it's a CRT or an LCD, um, they're always going to display effectively progressively. Um, and so when you cut DV on Final Cut 3, for example, um, and you're playing back your timeline, Final Cut is um, doing some trickery to make it look like you're getting discrete frames um, by uh, in the canvas. I think they deinterlace. Um, but you, so you wouldn't see that comb effect usually if everything was set up right. You wouldn't see that comb effect when you're playing your timeline in, in Final Cut. Um, but where this became an issue, and I've, I've had this bite me a number of times, you know, back in the day, um, is that you would. Get your, get your edit done, you'd watch it on the computer, everything would look great. Um, you'd print it out to DVD or print it back to tape and then take it and watch it on, a, on an interlaced CRT and see that you know you cut a shot so that there was a half a field that, you, that was wrong that you didn't want in there or you'd have a title that um, had some sort of weird effect going on because it was um, being displayed interlaced, even though you created a progressive or something, um, and you would never see that oh, on the that computer. Was, that was the worst in Final Cut. I remember for years you couldn't do rolling titles in Final Cut, right? Because it didn't generate them. It didn't take into account interlaced timing, right? So That's your frame would actually. It would just move it up. Like, say you set it up to, to crawl up on the screen, it would just crawl up a certain number of pixels every time, not taking into account that crawling up one pixel and then another pixel, frame by frame, would actually mean that the picture went back down between those two fields. Right. Um, it was, God, it always looks so bad. And yes, yeah, so there were a number of times where, you know, you either wouldn't see it or you wouldn't see it unless you had, you know, back in the day, you could set your your timeline to be previewed out your Firewire bus to your deck and you'd have your deck hooked up to a, a CRT and you would see all kinds of issues there that just you wouldn't see on the computer screen. Um, so, yeah, anyways, that was a little diversion, but it, it's something that you may have seen if you've worked with the format back in the day. Right. I mean, the other time you could see it is if you're like paused on a frame in most NLEs, you you can end up seeing, or like in QuickTime Player, you can end up seeing both fields, and you'll see what what Colin was calling a comb effect, where on the edges of everything that are moving, you can see because you're actually seeing two different points in time interleaved together. It's really easy to see along the edge of something that's moving that the edge in one field doesn't line up with the edge in the other. And so you have these little like fingers sticking out every other line where the, the object is at a different place. And so the edge is, you know, combed. Right. And so, okay, we're, sh we're all HD now. Uh, is there a, a technical reason that we still need interlaced, Mike? Uh, I mean, we shouldn't. They should have been killed. They really should have been killed. Um, I mean, there's a reason why we need the temporal resolution right. that Interlace provided. So 60 frames a second we need. Right, and this is for things like sports, for example. Um, if you've seen the difference between a fast-moving sportsy type game like uh, soccer or something um, in in 30p versus 60i uh, having twice of that temporal resolution really makes a difference in what you can discern in terms of the action and um, motion and things like that right anything where you've got sort of uncontrolled pans as well so I mean this has been you know very early on people who shot on film realized that you really kind of have to limit yourself to slow pans and zooms for the most part, because otherwise, you know, you'll get a 
really noticeable strobe in the motion. Things just move too much between one frame and another. And I don't know. It's yeah, actually I, I noticed I saw uh, Cowboys and Aliens this weekend, and the opening shot is a a wide pan across a, a landscape, and there was that was very evident. And I was sort of shocked to see that in a big Hollywood movie. Hmm. But I'm sure it was shot on you know shot on DSLR. Yeah, or shot on you know something with a, a shutter timing that was set up wrong, or they did it on purpose. That's becoming a look now. <sighs> look. Well, speaking of looks, I think it's worth noting as well that um, some people probably think of what they would call the soap opera look. And one of the main elements of that, aside from lighting and things like that, is that soap operas are generally shot 60i, whereas sort of episodic TV um, back in the day was shot on film primarily and now is at least shot progressive on on HD. Um, And so there was this big visual difference in terms of the way people moved. between those types of TV. And so that, I think, is part of why the video look, the 60i look, got a reputation as this sort of low-cost thing because um, sort of cheap content that you saw on TV had that look um, and why filmmakers were so excited to give up more than half of their temporal resolution and go down to 24p um, in order to get away from that look. Right, and I mean, you know, as a... I can get all film studies major on you for a little bit here and talk about, you know, how it may trigger some sort of psychological, you know, distancing, which causes you to treat it less like reality and allows the viewer to experience a suspension of disbelief. But, you know, that's probably all BS. (laughs) Um, I think more likely, you know, I think a lot of that the you know the stylistic argument for interlace versus progressive is is you know overwrought. Um, it was an easy thing to sell people for a period there when we switched digital, um, and I think it got a lot more marketing than it really deserved. I think you know really I mean all of the the things that people really want stylistically. Um, for creative projects involve removing information from the image. Right. Either removing temporal resolution or removing objects of interest from the frame via, you know, depth of field. Um, really, it's about focusing focusing the, the, the viewer's eye more on one specific thing, you know, that's under your control. But I don't think, you know, I mean... People argue that getting rid of half of the temporal resolution somehow changes what, but, but I don't think, I mean, I don't think that focuses the viewer. Right. You know, depth of field makes total sense. You get rid of everything in the background and people are going to focus on, you know, the two people gazing into each other's eyes in the front. Who are slightly out of focus. Yeah. (laughs) But... I mean, the fact that they that they that you don't see them get from you know point A to point A point you know A and a third, right? Because we remove that little bit of motion in the middle. I don't think. I mean, bah. Yeah. What I, I will never say really though, bought that argument is that there are now a ton of cameras coming out, and they've been around for a few years, but now the the floodgates are really open that shoot 60p, 1080p, 60. Um, and this is where we should be. Well, but when I watch it, it's it's disconcerting because it is hyper real. It's the fluidity of motion combined with the resolution makes it almost feel like the world is moving too fast. Um, it's it's a very yeah, strange. I've seen effect. that too. Um, and you you think like something's wrong here. There, you know, something something's not right. Um, but no, it's just that you know, it's like when you started working with HD for the first time. It's getting used to all that in, extra information that you're you're receiving. So do you think do you think it's really just purely psychological? I think because so. my yeah. my feeling has been that you're getting closer to sort of um, that you're getting off register more with the because we're talking predominantly you know screening footage on a computer, right? Right. I'm my impression is that you know when you get to sixty p that. The thing that makes, because it almost seems more stuttery, 
Is that is that kind no, of? A, I don't I don't feel that way. I feel that it's too smooth. Interesting, because to me it feels Maybe like just it's frames. could be. <laughs> to me, it feels like it's it's getting into sort of some sort of weird um, uh, sort of partial factor of the screen refresh. Sure. Well, but so what you end up with is like one refresh of one frame and two or three refreshes of the next frame and then one refresh uh, of the next frame. That shouldn't happen with any modern video decoding. It's all synced to screen redraws. Right, but it has to be synced to the screen redraw. Right, but, you know, presumably QuickTime is. Right, which is why it doesn't tear. And if it doesn't tear, it has to be all updated in one refresh. Right. So if you're refreshing the screen at 75 hertz and you have 60 frames a second... Oh, yeah, but we're all refreshing our screens at 60 hertz nowadays. Your screen's set to 60? Aren't all LCDs that Apple ships? Hold on. Now I'm curious. I thought we were all at 75. You can't even see it in Lion. How do you... I I don't think it's at 60, is it? I don't know. I can't change it. Uh, Now I'm curious. I can't change it either. Yeah, I think they took that out. 60 would cost too much strobing with lights, wouldn't it? Because it wouldn't be, it's not going to be 60 timed exactly to your wall outlet. You know, that's all buffered out. We're talking about DC. Well, yeah, but I mean, nothing's actually refreshing because it's all LED backlit and the pixels aren't necessarily, they're not all being refreshed. They're toggled. It's just 60 hertz is the fastest that you can possibly change the value of a pixel. Now I'm curious. Excuse my typing. For a second here, cinema display refresh rate. Well, and the, let's see, the 30-inch cinema display was still fluorescent backlit, and so those tubes would be at 60 hertz. Um, right now, your new one is LED backlit. It's hardware set to 60 hertz with no way to change it. Yeah, I thought so. I'm full of wind today. Wow. Um, well, I was going to say, you know, one of the other things, just it's worth completing the thought on 60p that people really love is that you can take 60p, turn it into 30p, and get 50% slow motion and not lose any resolution, uh, which is another thing that people love about these 60p cameras. But I think it is, it's really interesting to see this whole new look being introduced, this whole new way of consuming data being introduced, and to think, you know, is that going to become the norm where we start seeing... 60p you know hollywood productions actually i guess it's it's already happening i think uh the new peter jackson film i think i I remember reading is being shot on on one of red's uh vapor cameras at 60p um so he has one it's not vapor for him exactly it's in a cardboard box with a little hole punched in it um but you know It'll and I don't think it'll end up in theaters at 60p, but I don't know. It's just a, it's an interesting look. But in, in any case, we've we've still got a lot of interlaced content out there. And I thought the real gist of why I wanted to bring this up was to talk about all the way that uh, our listeners are screwing it up and uh, annoying it. <laughs> so this is basically this is going to be the rant I have to listen to every week when you find something on YouTube that's interlaced. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. so first off, I, I mean, didn't know we were going that way. First off, we last week we talked about inner frame compression, and we talked about all the cool ways that compression works, and we were talking about discrete frames. Um, if you just take interlaced footage and don't make any special effort to deal with it as interlaced footage, and you compress it um, with temporal compression in an inner, inner frame fashion, um, some really weird things can happen because temporal compression is based on the idea that we can sort of predict motion in these, you know, square blocks of data. Um, and if you have two fields mixed together, you know, odd things happen because you have two different types of temporal data sort of fighting each other. Um, so formats like H264, at least in their specifications, have support for interlaced encoding where they actually deal with each field as a separate frame you can think of it as a separate picture and compress them independently and they'll actually motion predict across fields then um but that often doesn't happen um a lot of times somewhere in the production process interlaced footage 
turns into progressive footage without actually being converted. They convert. Right. Well, it turns into two frames displayed. Two fields displayed as one. Two fields frame. displayed concurrently. Right. So that you know the right and way. Tagged as progressive. The right way to do that is something called deinterlacing, where you either in its very simplest fashion you just throw away every other field um hopefully you're not doing that but you can blur the two fields together um or you can do really fancy optical flow you know image analysis to try and reconstruct the missing data um so you can essentially take 60 fields and turn it into 60 frames by right. rebuilding the lines that are missing there's, there's all kinds of cool stuff that can happen to turn interlaced right so you take all your upper fields and you offset them by half a frame, and then you up-res it. So you've got 30, 30 frames a second at half resolution. You convert that to 60 frames a second by doing motion estimation to build all those center frames. Then you take that motion estimation and interleave it with the original frame that you had. Right. And that becomes your new single frame. Right. That's like the fancy way to do it. And that can or you be, do it on both and then sort of mix and match. But. Right. And that can give really amazing results at the expense of huge CPU um, and can do really interesting things when you have, you know, titles and things um, mixed with fast moving content. Um, you can, you know, introduce artifacts. Um, there's all kinds of nightmarish things um, that can happen in this process. And what happens is a lot of times people either don't know or they don't bother. Um, and so they end up spitting out a QuickTime file, and we're not going to even get into pixel aspect ratios here, but that's a whole other issue that pisses me off. But uh, they end up spitting out a QuickTime file that's you know an H.264 at 30 frames a second that has two interleaved fields. And once you've done that, it's really hard to undo that, um, either programmatically or manually. I mean... Um, there are papers out there that you're welcome to read. I'd be happy to uh, link you to on uh, programmatically detecting interlaced footage in that fashion. But even if you detect it, there aren't a lot of great tools that can go in and sort of unweave um, those two interlaced fields back into you know, back into actual fields. And that's just because they've been sort of muddled together through the compression process. Right. Exactly. I mean, sure. you know. You could, you could make it better, but you're never going to get back to those two discrete fields in a particularly useful way. Um, and so what happens is that you can, you can take two approaches with this. One, um, and this is what YouTube at least did. I don't know if they still are doing. Um, you basically deinterlace everything. Um, even you, de- you deinterlace progressive content, essentially, by blurring uh, the vertical resolution. So um, anything you upload to YouTube, they throw away half at, your at least at, at one point. They're probably not doing that anymore. Um, they're probably a little smarter, um, but yeah. And, and so they would just sort of assume um, that you probably were too dumb to do this right, and so they're going to blur it together because the alternative, um, especially when you take footage and you know you run it through um, internet-y type compression that might change the frame rate and throw away lots of data. Um, if you don't deinterlace it and you display it on a progressive display like your computer monitor, you'll see that comb effect really badly. Um, and that's the second second rant. Um, but so you can you can do that, um, and and plenty of people are. Um, the other issue you see um, that I just mentioned is when you scale that type type of footage. Um, you can get really interesting effects um, from something called Nyquist sampling, where you start to um, when you when you if you take a 720 by 480 frame that's made up of uh, fields that have been mashed together, and then you scale it down, those discrete fields that comb effect they aren't going to lie on perfect pixel boundaries anymore, um, and so you're going to start to get these weird wavy effects vertically within an image um, because so you can end up it's like um, because when you scale it down the simple way to do that is to just pick a, a line so let's say you make it half the half the height that it was before you would then just rebuild an image with every even line 
And so in that case, you would end up just throwing away one of your two fields. But if you do it a third of the resolution, then you end up with every third line, which means you'll get two upper fields and then a lower and then two upper and a lower and two upper and a lower. Or if you get into really, and as you get like more and more off, you know, nice round fractions, you can end up with the top half of your image being all upper and the bottom half of your image being all lower or, you know, every quarter of the image being a different temporal. Right. And so I, I saw this the other day. Um, I, I see this a lot, but I saw this the other day in a commercial that's running right now with um, Michelle Obama. And it, it looked like what had happened was it was a commercial that would probably been produced in HD originally. And one particular shot in it used some footage from a local news channel that was probably originated 1080i60. Um, but when it was brought into this, this um, commercial that was shot, otherwise shot progressive, it wasn't flagged properly, um, which wouldn't have been an issue if the commercial was airing in HD because it would have been going out 1080i60 and assuming a variety of other things didn't go wrong in the production process, you probably wouldn't have noticed. But in this case, the commercial was being aired um, in standard def because it was on a, an over-the-air standard def channel. And so it was getting scaled down. And so the commercial looked great except for this one shot that has had these crazy um, oversampled interlaced scaling artifacts. Um, and it just looked awful and you see this a lot and it's very annoying because if if the person had just flagged it right in their timeline you know their nle would have dealt with it for them um, see you complain about this a lot to me well and is okay it, so is it just that i don't that I, watch any tv or is it that's not the one that drives me the nuts the most the one that really kills me so uh, you can like well, you gotta find some of these and put them in the. you have to come up with like a worst of and put them in the show notes well, okay. This podcast can't go out until you have some sort of proof that these things actually make it in the wild, because these things never. I never find them. Well, but you don't watch TV. Yeah. Well, there you go. Because um, the other one I see a lot. Um, we mentioned that you you have in a sort of a, a stream of interlaced footage. You have one field, then another field, then one field, then another field. Um, you need to tell the display device which field to display first, because these are discrete moments in time. Uh, and these are this is what's called upper and lower field ordering. Um, you'll see. Right. It. Well, this. I mean. So, just to clarify that a little bit, it used to be that you would send one field down the pipe, and then the next one, and then the next one, and the next one. In that case, you didn't have to do anything. Sure. Where it became an issue was where we started round tripping through digital, and so as soon as we end up in digital, we stick them together into one frame, and when you do that, you either put the earlier field. Uh, in the even lines or in the odd lines, in the upper lines or lower lines. So either line one and three and five have the earlier of the two fields, or line two and four and six. And so if you if you write the frame into your digital world in one of those two formats and then read it back out in the opposite, you've now switched the order of those two frames. So right. it's like playing back progressive, like if you were shot 1080, 60p, and you played frame two, then one, then four, then three, then six, then five. Right. And I see this all the time on our local PBS station, and primarily. I see it on some of the other channels as well, but like a lot of their bumpers and things will be going out with incorrect field ordering. And I don't wow. know like how they're not seeing it. Um, I think Rand Paul would tell you why. Because <laughs> they have no incentive to... Uh, yeah, to do things right. Yeah, well, that could be, but they're actually a pretty decent PBS station. And Ayn Rand tried. She invented a material to build public television stations out of. <laughs> Wait, am I getting this confused or something? <laughs> <I'm not> sure. <laughs> uh, what was the name of the, the unobtainium, the stuff they were going to make the rails out of in... I'm going to show Atlas my ignorance and say I've never actually read Atlas Shrugged. Neither have I. Oh. But I did go to college, which meant I had to put up with a lot of people who had read it. Yeah. You didn't have that in the dorms? No. Ugh. I don't really talk to people in the dorms. Uh, that probably helped. Yeah. Helped with the depression. Um, 
anyways, this watch watch TV. If if you watch TV, you'll see this. It'll be on you know commercials. It'll be on just little interstitials that go out. You'll see the footage just looks really, for lack of a better word, jittery. Um, and that's what's going on is that they've gotten their field ordering wrong somewhere in their production process. Uh, and unfortunately, what can happen is that you know it happens upstream. It happens very early in the process. And as we said, it's very difficult to take out once it's been baked in. So you should all stop doing that. Start dealing with interlaced footage right. If you if you think about it at all, um, and NLEs have made this easier. You know, if you trust the NLE to set up your timeline for you, that solves one big issue. If you capture footage with a tool that properly flags it, so if you're bringing in camera files um, through uh, a cl- application like ClipWrap or ScopeBox that properly deals with interlaced footage, that should take right. care of it this for is- you. So this is something we run into a lot. So this is where it starts to matter whether or not you're using tools designed to do video or tools designed to do professional video. And so, you know, we get a lot of questions from users or I guess not users, prospective users um, for, for ClipRap saying like why would i buy clipwrap when there are all these free you know open source tools that will do the same thing and one of the reasons is because these sort of things are not on the radar of most computer video people right um cuz computer video is always progressive right and very few people are quite as anal The two of us. I mean, most of the people working on open source video applications are not writing me daily to complain about the interstitials on their PBS channel like Colin does. Right. (laughs) So we have a little bit more of an eye for these sort of things. And we make sure that, you know, one of the big things that ClipRap does automatically is figures out the right interlaced field order or whether it is interlaced or not and it just automatically sets that whereas a lot of the other tools there's like a checkbox and a drop down you have to you know you have to actually know what format your stuff is so that it will insert you know it'll insert the tag just fine for you but you have to tell it what tag to insert right so you have and to if know you get that, that wrong dv or is lower it, and hdv is upper but you know this particular camera does something weird or whatever right so yeah, that's definitely a, a big issue. Um, and again, you know, hopefully it's getting better as the production pipeline becomes more automated. You know, it was really bad prior to Final Cut Six when you had to manually set up your timeline, and if you dropped if you dropped upper ordered footage into a lower ordered timeline, um, Final Cut was going to ask you to render everything, and it was very confusing as to why that was going on. Um, or you could potentially just end up with all kinds of artifacting. Um, right. I mean, so do you feel like there's any reason to have interlaced anymore? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, as you say, I think you know, 60p solves the temporal resolution issue, and we'll just get back. We'll get used right. to the look. Um, and the other, I mean, so the main reason why it existed, um, and why it made the transition to digital and why it even made the transition to some of these HD formats is because you're able to get the temporal resolution at half the data rate. Right. But it seems to me that now that we're running everything through these, you know, really advanced compression schemes, you know, halving your data rate is pretty easy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, pushing 60p you know, is no longer the challenge it was even five years ago. Right. I mean, more so like you never get, there are no modern compression techniques that are that inefficient at halving your data rate. Right. And there's well, nothing and that, would, that would cut your vertical, that would cut your perceptual resolution in half for half the data. Right. Well, and, and of course, one of the nice things about this type of issue in dealing with compression, um, because temporal compression is so good, when you up your temporal resolution by going from 30 frames to 60, um, you're essentially just getting you know more data points for um, their motion prediction. And so a lot of times it just helps their, them be more accurate in their motion prediction, but there's often very little additional data needed. 
Right, because you're not adding you're not adding sixty you're not adding thirty discrete new frames. You're adding thirty new frames that were already that are made up of things that were already in the scene. Right. The only time this bites you is if you have sixty p white noise. Right. But you probably don't need to broadcast very often. Right. And and you know is. Uh, 30p white noise will screw up most encoders anyways so and and just to connect back to last week's um finally episode um we talked a little bit about data moshing and some of these uh, i think it was last week intentionally making footage look um like it's been digitally distorted and you do sometimes see uh the comb filter look um used to to denote you know video denote old video and you'll definitely see um when shows like switch into the video look the 60i look um to tell you that you're watching something via tv or something in the show uh you'll definitely see that as well to help you understand what's going on in in the scene um and so this is one of those things that becomes another part of the language around you know what you're seeing right and and on an mostly unrelated note um a great music video that uses this sort of thing stylistically um is ida maria's oh my god so let's put that in the show notes i don't remember that one um the whole thing starts out with like um misordered frames okay it's really good all right take a look cool how long, have, how long have we been on here? About an hour and a bit. Okay. Um, I bought a 3D screen. What? Yeah. Why? Want to talk about that? I got a passive, because they finally came out. So at NAB this year, like one of the big things that they were showing was, um, so a few years ago, they started making the passive screens really large. So you get a 40, 60, 80 inch screen that had basically alternate pixels were covered with little circular polarizers so you could put on regular you know um polarized sunglasses like you get when you go to see you know avatar in the theater and time watch 3d at home well what is it now harry potter okay cowboys versus aliens that wasn't in 3d oh that's why it wasn't any good. That's not why. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So as opposed to um, buying and so a Panasonic TV, where you you have shutter glasses. Actually, Panasonic's not a good example because they make passive. But an LCD where you have shutter glasses, where it would display 120 frames a second, and it would send a signal to your glasses, which had batteries in them, that would physically completely block one eyeball at a time while it updated the image so you would it would cover up one of your eyes with an lcd or an L, yeah lcd that would just go completely black in the glasses and show you the left eye for one frame and then black out your left eye and show you the right eye on the screen and those are one you're wearing heavy glasses two they have to sync to the screen somehow so they end up using infrared or something so if you look away from the tv it can stop um shuttering um also they have to be shown at different times which some people argue causes more eye strain yeah um also they're expensive and dorky Uh, yeah also they're heavy and yeah just in general not the greatest solution and so what they did and you know started maybe two years ago was putting tiny little polarizing filters over each individual pixel in a large screen and when we were at NEB this year they started showing small screens both for you know production quality monitors that you could you know editors can have at their desk you know, for like five to ten thousand dollars, which are you know somewhat color critical, and uh, you know let you preview stuff. And then they've you know 
with that, they've kind of gotten, they've miniaturized the technology enough that they're able to, you know, they started showing consumer level 23 through 30 inch TVs. Um, and so I got, they finally are shipping them now after all these months. Um, and so I have a 23 inch LG on order. And how are you going to drive that? The hope is to drive a DVI off a computer. And so how do you encode 3D data on a progressive DVI connection? Um, so the way they do it is you, you send it a standard 1080 signal, 1080p signal, and you can send it. There's a number of different modes. One is you can interlace the two, your left eye and right eye. So left eye goes in odd fields and right eye goes in even fields. And then the TV takes those two fields apart and generates a left and right eye to display. Or you can do left and right just side by side or top and bottom side by side. And one thing it's it's worth pointing out, I think, because we've been talking about all this spatial and temporal resolution stuff. One of the the criticisms of 3D is that in, in any mode like this, you're essentially losing half of your spatial resolution. Each right, eye is seeing. These hacky ways where you're sending it down a standard video signal, yes. Now, there's a new, there's an update to HDMI, HDMI 1.4, right. which has been out for a while now, which actually lets you send two discrete frames at full resolution. Um, I don't know if this TV supports that. I'm really not particularly concerned because I want to be able to drive it off the computer from software. So the idea is there'll be a 23-inch 3D screen on my desk that I can send outputs from an app directly in 3D. Cool. So you're a big believer in 3D? Um, it's for a client. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those, no, uh, <laughs> there are great uses for it. And I, you know, this is, you know... I would put medical imaging in in that category. Medical imaging and reality TV and home videos. Porn, yeah. which is a different kind of medical imaging. <laughs> but could use and the same cameras, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so I think that basically wraps everything up. All right, well, uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Um, so have we started... Before we leave, some some shopkeeping. Have we started? Um, do we do show notes now? Not really. Um, we'll get put this. Anything in the feed? Oh, well, I put some notes and links as appropriate. But uh, once we get this rolled into our content management system, um, so that I'm not manually editing XML, I'll be more incentivized to uh, do proper show notes, and we can push things out to the blog as well. Then. Yeah. Also, with the risk of being fired, you'll be more incentivized too. Yeah, and with the uh, the benefit of being paid. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> goes with goes both ways, Mike. I suppose so. All right. Bye. Talk to you later.